We are continuing on with our series here, and it is July 4th, Independence Day. It got me thinking about King George. Now, if you've maybe seen the, the Hamilton play, you saw kind of a fun representation of George III. George III ends up coming to the throne of England in, well, in the 1700s, and he, there's some controversy around his true character. Was he really as maniacal as the play would show? He becomes the king at just 22 years old. Can you imagine being a 22-year-old and becoming the king? What kind of pressure that would have with it? Within 10 years of becoming the king, he's got to deal with these unruly colonists in the U.S., in the, in the America, I suppose, in the colonies of America. And, and throughout his life, he is actually ends up being a really devout, devout guy, has faith, he prays. He's uh, not only a man of faith, but he's faithful. He's faithful to his wife, unlike his brothers and others who have mistresses. This guy's a family guy. And I really think that when I look at his life, I think much of his character, much of his character was shaped by his mother who really took an active and involvement in his his development as a leader as well as his father-in-law was stepfather and so kings and leaders are actually shaped first of all by their parents it makes sense doesn't it but i thought about another world leader a leader named adolf hitler who was also shaped by his leaders you see adolf hitler's father beat him physically as a kid and Though his mother tried to stick up for him, it really left Hitler very bruised and bitter. And his father was really frustrated that he wanted to be a musician. And he was interested in art. And his father kept denying him his passion. In fact, um, at some point, Adolf Hitler wanted to be a priest. And yet, his brother dies at a fairly young age, and both of his parents die by the time Adolf Hitler is 16 years old. At that point, he's in and out of homeless shelters. And I believe that the lack of healthy discipline and parental love that he, that he was denied in his, in his growing up years actually are part of the reason why he ended up being such a corrupt leader later in his life. Well, as we continue this series and think about world leaders and think about shaping, I'm here to tell you we're talking about King David, the third of our three kings, as we're looking at this series called Lessons from Three Kings. And we're going to see today that David was a good king. He was a good world leader, but he wasn't a very good father. I would say he was a pretty lousy parent from what we're seeing here in the scriptures. And when David really needed to lean in with his children, really needed to confront what was going on in their lives, he seemed to be absent or unwilling to get involved. I would say he refused to get involved. I think David maybe had a hard time with confrontation. He was probably better with his sling confronting Goliath than confronting his son who had done something that was horribly wrong. And this kind of lack of willing to engage and confront actually led to a full-scale rebellion on his children's part and certainly destruction in his household. So, giving that cheery intro, 
Let's take a look at our passages today. Now, I don't know if the amount of children were the reason that David had a hard time engaging his children. Because as I read about a, a, a woman from the 1600s who you might have heard of, her name is Susanna Wesley. She had 19 children. And, well, about 10 of them lived past infancy. But can you imagine 10 children at home? How would you divide up your time? How could you parent 10 children well? But Susanna had a husband who went to jail at least twice because he didn't do well with his finances. Um, she would famously cover up her head with her skirts so that she would have private time to pray for her children. She prayed for children one hour out of every day. And then she also had made a practice of taking every child aside once a week to talk to them about spiritual things. Did this work? Was this helpful? Well, two of her children were world changers. John Wesley, who was the, the starter and the one who, who was the, the, the beginning of the Methodist church, and Charles Wesley, a famous hymn writer. So I don't think David's amount of children were the reason why he didn't do so well in parenting. I don't think that's ever a good excuse for any of us. I wonder if David's lack of parenting started with his growing separation from his heavenly father. I think over time, as David has become kind of fat and happy on the throne, that everything seems to be handed to him. There's not a lot of adversity. I believe that he's written less psalms. I think he's prayed less prayers. And I think there's been a growing distance between he and God. And how do I know this? Well, I think... Part of the hint could be found actually in Deuteronomy 17, 17, where Moses is saying this, look out when you finally get a king, Israel, because he must, the king must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. You get a bunch of wives, your heart is going to be led astray from God. The best thing that we can do to be healthy parents, good parents in our lives is actually to pursue our relationship with God. The best way that we can grow as managers, as supervisors, as bosses is to actually work on our relationship with our master, Jesus. The best way that we can impart to those who are around us life-giving words is by reading God's life-giving words, hearing God's life-giving words, experiencing his words. But at this point, David's been on the throne for probably about 30 years, maybe more. David's relationship seems thin with God, strained, forced, and maybe you feel the same way today. Maybe you feel like you're a long ways off from God and your relationship with God seems thin and forced. If so, you might find your leadership, your influence, your fathering, your mothering will be showing this to be true as well. So, David is here on the throne. He's just come out and through the whole Bathsheba incident. Now, we talked about this last week, but I want to remind you about the consequences of sin are not taken away by God, even when he's faithful to forgive our sins and to take away the spiritual impact. And Nathan the prophet comes to David and, and ex explains this in 2 Samuel 12, verses 10 through 11, uh, 12. Take a look. 
Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Verse 11. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did this with Bathsheba in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Yikes. Because David takes a woman who is not his wife, sleeps with her, gets her pregnant, ends up arranging her husband's death, then tries to cover it all up by bringing him, her in as his wife. Ooh, yuck. And David's sin in this way opens the door for the enemy to have a field day in his house. The sins of the father, even going down to the generations, the Old Testament says. So since David has sown these seeds of taking one who is not, who does not belong to him, who is not his own in Bathsheba. It has sown seeds that are now going to bear fruit. We're going to see in this chapter, chapter 13, in his many children, where they are doing the same thing. The fruit of these seeds are now coming to bear this behavior. So last week we called it the taking. Basically, the idea that Samuel had warned that any king would not be a giver he would be a taker and he would take their sons and daughters and take their money, take their crops and the best things that they had. And here David does in 2 Samuel chapter 12, he takes Bathsheba as his own. Well, now we're going to see his sons following his example and taking. It starts with Amnon. He's the firstborn. He's probably the one that's going to become king at this point. He's a big deal. And Amnon, well, he probably just thinks that he's above the law. Kind of like David. Kind of seemed like he felt like he was above the law. Amnon falls in love with his half-sister. That's weird. And he devises a secret plan to lure her into his bedroom. And then he rapes her. He takes her. The one who is not her, his to take he takes her. Now David hears about this. This is the father. This is the father of both these kids. And 2 Samuel 13, 21 says what he does. When David heard all about this, he was furious. Wait, isn't there more to the verse? It, you mean that's it? You mean he was just mad? Yes. Of course, David should be furious. But he completely fails to engage or bring any kind of justice into the situation. And he's a silent leader when he needs to speak up. He needs to bring justice. He needs to advocate for his daughter. I think everyone was watching for David and waiting for him to act. We know he was angry, but he doesn't act. I saw this quote this week. It says this, ignored behavior is condoned behavior. Ignored behavior is condoned behavior. When a leader doesn't make a statement about something that is wrong, he is, in fact, condoning that behavior. 
I think David, David's waning relationship with God was a hangover from his sin. It didn't have to be that way. But I think David in some ways kept replaying his failure. And then he didn't feel like he had the authority to be able to speak into his own children's lives in the same way because he had failed. Therefore, he didn't feel like he had the place or the right to do it. The leadership principle is this. Good leaders don't ignore problems just, be, just hoping that they're going to disappear. I saw this really fun quote, this little picture of this ostrich. You know, ostrich sometimes put their head in the sand pretending that things aren't wrong that are wrong around them. This is what the quote says. It says this, avoidance is the best short-term strategy to escape conflict and the best long-term strategy for, to ensure suffering. And even though we try to avoid, let's say, confrontation, and I think David was avoiding confrontation with his son, it is going to guarantee suffering, more suffering later than if he was actually responsible to handle it as the father. Mark Twain said this, It is curious that physical courage should be so common in the world and moral courage so rare. I think David was a man of great physical courage. He was a man who took on a, a wolf and a bear to protect his sheep and Goliath early on. He's one who is a, a champion warrior who goes into battle and wins many battles. He's very physically courageous, but morally he's showing an incredible deficit when it comes to his moral courage. And so what does this lead to? Well, it leads to revenge. Why? Because the leader is not engaging when he should. It's opened the door for someone else to come and try to make things right. And so we have revenge in the middle part of 2 Samuel chapter 13. It was Absalom, one of David's other sons, who doesn't talk to his brother Amnon who commits this crime. He gives him the silent treatment just like David. For how long? For two whole years. Father and son don't talk to brother. And then Absalom also takes in Tamar, his sister, as a compassionate way to, to show her love and care because she was rejected after this. So what happens? Absalom decides to take revenge. He sets up a plot where he invites all the brothers to a dinner. And in the presence of all the other brothers, Absalom kills his brother, Amnon. Not unlike the way David arranged for Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to be killed. 2 Samuel 13, verse 37, tells us that this is what happens next. After Absalom kills his brother, Absalom fled and went to Talmai, son of Amahud. This is his, basically his in-laws, the king of Geshur. And, the, and King David mourned for his son every day. After Absalom fled and went to Geshur, he stayed there for three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go to his son Absalom. For he was consoled concerning, concerning Amnon's death. So here's what happens. Absalom kills his brother Amnon, who had raped his sister. 
This is like a soap opera. It's horrible. And after two years of silence, finally, Absalom decides to take matters into his own hands, literally kills his brother. And then he realizes, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble. There is no sacrifice that can be made at the temple, in this case, not the temple, but the tabernacle, that will actually forgive me of my sins. This is a capital punishment. I better get out of here. And so he goes to his in-laws in Gesher and he hides out for three years. So now it's been five years since David engaged. And he, even though it says, the verse says that the spirit of the king longed to go to his son Absalom, he doesn't do it. He leaves Absalom out there in his shame exiled. Now, moving to the next chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 14, verses 23 and 24, it says, Then Joab, who is the commander of the army, went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the king, King David, said this, He must go down to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and he did not see the face of the king. It's been five years since his father has seen his son. He's holding on to this grudge. He's unwilling to forgive, unwilling to even see his face. You can come back, sort of. You can kind of have permission to come back to Jerusalem, sort of, but I better never see your face again. Jerusalem wasn't that big. I wonder, for those of us who are parents, when our kids mess up, do they always feel like the door would be open to them to welcome them back? This whole account feels like the opposite of a parable that Jesus told. Jesus told one of my favorite parables in Luke 15, the parable of the lost son, sometimes called the prodigal son. And Jesus tells of this son, this wayward son who goes and squanders his father's money in a faraway land doing awful things. And yet when the boy comes to his senses, he realizes I can return home and I can just ask to be a slave. And, and so he's practicing his speech all the way home that, Father, I've sinned against God and against you. And if you could just let me be a slave in your house, it would be better than feeding the pigs in this faraway land. And so as he's rehearsing and he's walking over the horizon to his father's home, his father is watching in the doorway all the time, watching for the son, waiting for the son to come back. And the father sees the son's silhouette on the horizon in the sunset. And he rushes out and embraces his son. And before his son can even give his, I'm so sorry, dad speech. And you can just make me a slave. I'm no longer worthy to be a son. The father embraces him and says, you're home. Let's have a party. Let's gonna, we're going to celebrate you. David is doing the opposite of the story that Jesus tells. And this story that Jesus tells, I believe, is the father heart of God for us. That his arms are always open to us. That there's always a way to come back home, no matter how far you've gone, no matter what you've done. There was a a father I met recently, an older gentleman. And 
he didn't tell me really about his other son. He kind of neglected to tell me about him. You see, his other son lives in another state. His other son has been very successful. A successful architect seems to have everything. And along the way, somehow, father and son got their wires crossed and they decided to not talk to one another again. 18 months had gone by. And that father began to hear the Holy Spirit speak to him. That he was to call his son that very day to apologize and to welcome him home. And so the father couldn't get back to his phone fast enough to dial up his son. And he said his hands were shaking, his palms were sweating. He was nervous about what his son would say, but he decided not to try to solve any of the problems, just to say, son, I forgive you. Will you please forgive me? I want to start over. And not knowing whether that son would reciprocate, he was nervous at the long pause. And this father with tears told me the story later that night that his son responded. Not only did he pick up the phone, but he listened to me. And then he said, dad, you've got to forgive me too. Let's start over. Let's figure out a way forward. So beautiful to see a father lay down his pride and to say, I've blown it. Will you take me back? I wonder if you've got a broken relationship that deserves a phone call. Do you have a relationship maybe where God's prompting you right now that it's time for you to take the first step? Now you might have a hundred reasons why you're saying, but, but they, but they were, were mean to me and, and, and they were the one who started it and it's their fault. And, but are you willing to humble yourself? Because I believe that part of where David was, was a, an unwillingness to, for, to forgive, to humble himself, to step into place and say, I blew it. I should have stepped in. But David does not engage. So who is this Prince Absalom? What do we know about him? And where do things go from here? Well, Absalom, we read about him in 2 Samuel 14. I think, as I picture him, I think he looks like Fabio. He has incredible hair. I mean, all of the girls swoon when they see him. I mean, Fabio's like in his 60s, I think now. But still, I'm sure, I'm sure someone thinks he's handsome. But here are some t- attempts, as I googled Absalom's name, uh, of attempts at what he might look like. What past Fabio? It was, I was just kidding. But maybe, maybe Absalom looked like this. Certainly, we know. He had some serious hair. How do we know this? Well, 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 25. Let's see what the Bible says about our friend Absalom, shall we? In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish on him. Not one zit. Verse 26. 
whenever he cut his hair, the hair of his head. He used to cut his hair from the time to time, and when it became too heavy for him, he would weigh it, and it was weight was 200 shekels by the royal standard. It's five pounds of hair. I just got a haircut. I can guarantee you it was not even one pound of hair. Verse 27. Three sons and a daughter were born to Absalom. The daughter's name was Tamar, named after his, her aunt, and she became a beautiful woman. Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. So, who is Absalom? He is a good-looking gentleman. He makes all of the girls swoon, kind of like Gaston in, um, the, in the Beauty and the Beast. So, they're all swooning. They think he's amazing. He's got hair that he flips all the time. And yet, he's been gone for these three years. He's brought back. There's another two years before he sees the king's face. Seven Years of silent treatment from David, a father, toward his kids, his son. So how does all this silent treatment affect our Prince Absalom? I think he's probably the favorite. I think he's David's favorite. And yet David refuses to engage. 2 Samuel chapter 15 tells us what Absalom did with all this negative energy, with all of this lack of fathering, I believe it leads to this behavior. Take a look at verse 1 with me. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. Notice he provides himself with this, these things. Verse 2, he would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. This is the main road. Everybody's going to go by. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, what town are you from? He would answer, your servant is the one of the tribes of Israel. Verse 3, then Absalom would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. They're all going to lunch. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or a case could come up to me and I would see that he gets justice. Verse 5. Also, when anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. He's kissing the babies and shaking the hands just like a good politician. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Yuck. What a snake in the grass. Absalom takes all of this bitterness, all this frustration, all the lack of fathering, and he puts it into conspiracy. Absalom is subtly winning the hearts of the people over to himself by undermining his father David's leadership. Meanwhile, David won't even see him, let alone love him as a father. So refusing to engage as a loving father 
I think, led in part to Absalom's plot to take the throne and kill David. I wonder what area of your life have you refused to engage? You know that if you just continue to ignore this area, that it's going to get worse and worse and worse, just like David ignored fathering his son. Where do you need moral courage to move forward? Well, Absalom is bitter, frustrated, and he fancies himself as a much better leader than his father. And it leads to an incredibly sad ending. The sad ending ends in 2 Samuel 18. But it really spans from chapter 15 on. Absalom is plotting to become king of Israel by taking the throne by force. It's what we would call a coup. And I was reading this book by Gene Edwards. I've mentioned it before. It's called A Tale of Three Kings. It talks about Saul, uh, the spear-throwing king who was threatened by David. It talks about David's unwillingness to kill Saul and to take the right, his rightful throne because it's, he's the Lord's anointed. And so David honors the, the Lord's anointed. Toward the end of the book, he talks about a third king who is Absalom. Absalom who takes the throne by force and is unwilling to honor the Lord's anointed and wait for, the, for God's timing. And Gene Edwards, in the 23rd chapter of this book, uh, imagines a conversation on the rooftop between King David and Abishai. Abishai is the brother of Joab, the military commander, and Abishai is one of the uh, David's mighty men. He's a, as a military strategist. He's a, he's a really, really like heroic guy, good guy. And I think I just want to read a little bit of this conversation for you. It's an imagined conversation. But I think what it does is I think Gene Edwards puts on display the good qualities of what David does in this situation because we don't want to just learn from the really bad things that David does. We want to also see the good stuff. And so David was alone again, slowly, quietly walking the length of his rooftop garden. Finally, he paused and spoke out loud to himself, I have waited, Absalom. I have waited and watched for years, and I have asked again and again, what is in the heart of this young man? And now I know you will do the unthinkable. You will divide the very kingdom of God all else was talk. David was quiet for a moment. And then almost in awe, he spoke, his voice hushed. Absalom does not hesitate to divide the kingdom of God. Now I know. He seeks followers, or at least he does, doesn't turn them away. Though he seems magnificently pure and noble, he still divides. His followers grow, even though he states convincingly that he has none. 
For a long time, David said nothing. And finally, with a trace of humor in his words, he began to address himself. All right, good King David, you have one issue resolved. You are now in the middle of a division and you may very well be dethroned. Now to the second issue. He paused, lifted his hand and almost fatally asked, what will you do? The kingdom hangs in the balance. It seems I have two choices, to lose everything or to be a Saul. I can stop Absalom. I need only to be a Saul. In my old age, shall I now become a Saul? I feel the Lord awaits my decision. Shall I now be a Saul? He asked himself again, this time loudly, and a voice behind him answered, Good king, he has been no David to you. David turned. It was Abishai who had approached unannounced. Uh, This is a crowded place, this terrace. Quipped David, sir, said Abishai, nothing. Suffice it to say, I have... Not been without visitors today, a day when I would have chosen solitude. And what did you say to me? In fact, what did I say? You said, shall I become a Saul to Absalom? And I replied to you, he's been no David to you. I never challenged Saul. I never attempted to divide the kingdom during his reign. Is that what you're saying? More replied Abishai strongly. Saul was evil toward toward you and made your life torture. He responded only with, you responded only with respect and private agony. The bad things that happened in those days only came from one side, all fell on you. You could have divided the kingdom and probably have overthrown Saul. But rather do that, you left the kingdom. You fled rather than causing division. You risked your life for unity and sealed your lips and eyes to all his injustices. You had more cause to rebel than any man has had in history of any kingdom that has ever been. Absalom has to twist hard to conjure up a list of injustices. I mean, a few of them significant, I might add. Has Absalom behaved as you did? Has Absalom respected you? Does Absalom seek to preserve the kingdom? Does he refuse to speak against you? Does Absalom turn aside fellow followers? Has Absalom left the land to prevent its being sundered? Is Absalom respectful? Does he bear suffering in silent agony? Has have bad things fallen on Absalom? No. He's only pure and noble. Abishai's words came out in bites. David interrupted with a grin. I seem to have a gift for making old men and young men hate me without a cause. In my youth, the old attacked me. When I'm old, the young attacked me. What a marvelous achievement. Good king, I remind you, Abishai said, that you refuse to raise your sword or your spear even once against Saul, but Absalom speaks against you day and night. He will one day soon raise up an army against you, nay, a nation, this nation. Young Absalom is no young David. I counsel you, stop him. You are asking me, Abishai, to become a Saul. David replied heavily, no, I simply... I'm saying he is no David. Stop him. If I stop him, David said, 
Will I still be a David? If I stop him, will I not be a Saul? Asked the king, his eyes piercing Abishai. To stop him, I must be either a Saul or an Absalom. David, said Abishai hoarsely, you know what it really means that Absalom is coming to ask you to go to Hebron. He wants to be, make himself king. Will you let him go to Hebron? Abishai demanded. I will, said the great king. As Abishai turned to leave, he said this. Good king, thank you. For what? The puzzled king asked. Not for what you've done, but for what you have not done. Thank you for not throwing spears, for not rebelling against kings, for not exposing a man in authority when he was so very vulnerable, for not dividing a kingdom, for not attacking young Absaloms who look like young Davids who are not. And thank you for suffering, for being willing to lose everything. Thank you for giving God a free hand to end and even destroy your kingdom. If it pleases him, thank you for being an example to us all. And most of all, he chuckled, thank you for not consulting witches. I think David, though he missed it with his kids, though he finds himself far from God in the midst of heartache, despair, trial, once again, David returns begins returning to himself and realizing that he must trust God with his kingdom. 2 Samuel 15, verse 7 says, at the end of four years, so now it's been 11 years with minimal contact between father and son, Absalom said to the king, let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. The king said to him, go in peace. And so he went to Hebron. David knows that if Absalom goes to Hebron, he makes himself king. He's lying. This is not about worshiping God. He knows that he may lose his kingdom. And Absalom goes and is crowned king with David's most trusted advisor, Ahithophel, behind the whole thing. Now, Ahithophel is trying to kill David. I believe for the shame that David brought on his family because Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather. And I think as we look at David, David's been listening to Ahithophel. He says that his words are even as if they're an oracle of God, meaning David has been going to Ahithophel for counsel instead of God for counsel. Over time, he's trusting man's wisdom instead of seeking God's face. I warn you, Christian, beware of the temptation to listen to the words of authors and friends and preachers and pastors and church leaders instead of seeking God yourself. 
Now, Ahithophel is power hungry. He backs the coup. It's all about what he can get out of the deal. And at this point, David has to run. He escapes the city. As Absalom is coming into the city, David and all of his household leaves, except for 10 concubines, 10 of these pseudo-wives, if you will, that David leaves behind to take care of the palace. And this arrogant leader, Absalom, is counseled by his counselors then to sleep with all 10 of those women in broad daylight so that he would fully dishonor his, hus- his, his father, fully putting it into a place where he could not be forgiven, that there would be no sense of Absalom changing his mind and bringing David back. This is a fulfillment of Nathan's prophecy in the last chapter we looked at last week that said that David's wives would be given to someone close to him and would be slept with in broad daylight. And here it is happening. The consequences of sin being lived out. And not long after that Absalom leads out an army very arrogantly to kill David and he gets his glorious hair stuck in a tree and he ends up getting killed by Joab, the commander. And this is so controversial because David went to great pains to tell all of his men to be gentle and handle Absalom gently. And yet in the end, Absalom is killed ruthlessly by Joab. And when David hears of Absalom's death, David looks so much more like himself. Instead of cold and insensitive the way that we saw him in the last chapter after the news of Uriah's death had come to him. 2 Samuel 18 verse 33 says this. He hears about Absalom's death and the king was shaken. He went up to the room above the gateway and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. If only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And so, though we've seen David's unwillingness to confront issues, to engage with his children, and the way that that has then I believe led to rebellion and destruction in his household. The Lord's calling us to a place of learning how to speak the truth in love, that we might not fall into the same pitfalls that David did. And I really believe that speaking the truth in love all comes down to this concept of honor. It was Danny Silk who said this, honor is the practice of calling out the best in one another, not only through words of praise, but in words of correction. Honor is not just about making someone feel good about all the things that they do well. It also is contained in those moments where we admonish one another. We come alongside one another. We have the moral courage to talk about what might not be right. What will it take for us to have the moral courage to be able to speak the truth in love with others? Because I think these days are filled with all sorts of love for each other. But love without truth is anemic. It's not really love. So how do we need to change our approach with our kids, with our friends? How can we be brave in engaging our coworkers, our neighbors, our friends, people in our life group? Are we just destined in this, in this era 
just to tell people what they want to hear? I say no. And yet the big fear, the big fear in the idea of confronting someone, bringing something that's hard, the, the truth that might be hard to hear, even in a loving way. Danny Silk says this about confrontation. The root of defensiveness in confrontation is almost always the fear of rejection. Oftentimes we don't engage with someone because we're afraid that they're going to reject us or we're afraid that they're going to get fearful that we will reject them. And so then it's time to defend. So as we close, I just want to offer you a few suggestions. As I prayed through this this week, I felt like the Lord showed me a few keys. These are very specific tangible ways that you could do confrontation. I believe the way that the Bible talks about speaking the truth in love. And so I've got a bullet point list here for you. I'll just go through a few of these. The first is underscoring that you will not abandon or reject this other person because it is really true that the big issue in confrontation is fear of rejection. And so if you could just say, I am committed to you no matter what, I will never I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to bail out. Even if we don't see eye to eye, I love you. This, this conversation is based on love, not judgment. I think that's so critical. And maybe the very first of all is to pray beforehand, to ask the Holy Spirit to give you strategy because God will give us wisdom if we ask him. And then sometimes it means that if you don't know the how-to of how to have this conversation or when to have this conversation or, or what the context is, Talk to someone who will do some coaching or some counseling with you on, on the how-to. Another idea for you is to get the facts clear. Make sure that you can separate facts from feelings. Make sure you know whether it's, it's the, if it's true or if it's just your version of truth. And don't assume you know the other person's motives because you don't know their motives. Explore with open-ended questions, not loaded questions. Own any part of the situation that's yours to own. And lastly, get clear on what your intended outcome is. is there, are your expectations coming out of this conversation doable and realistic? Well, these are just a few ideas for you on how you can engage someone that you see some things in their life and it's time for conversation. I would hate for, in this season, for us to see the same fruit that David experienced in our own lives, in our own kids, in our own relationships at work, in church, in other places, because we're afraid to speak the truth in love. So as we close, I just want to encourage you to heed the warning that the word gives us today. That David, even though he was a man after God's own heart, he refused to engage in the difficult conversations and it led to incredible destruction. May we find new moral courage from the throne of heaven. May we find the right words to say in the right ways to be able to love people back into 
places of health and strength and love. And may you find new ways to speak the truth in love so that others will experience the life to the fullest that Jesus came to bring us. So Jesus, help us to walk this out. Help us to hear your voice. Give us new strength and moral courage to come alongside others, to speak the truth in love. I bless this church family in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I ask on this Independence Day that we would find our dependence in you. So help us, guide us, strengthen us through your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us. We're looking forward to seeing you next week.